Hi, this is Dave Summers, and welcome to AMA Edgewise. Whitney Johnson is a CEO advisor, frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, and has over 1 million followers on LinkedIn. She was an award-winning Wall Street analyst and co-founded the Disruptive Innovation Fund with Clayton Christensen, who's also participated in this program in the past. She is a frequent keynote speaker on disruption, hosts the weekly Disrupt Yourself podcast, and has been recognized as one of the world's most influential management thinkers by Thinkers 50 and Fortune magazine. Her latest book, which we'll be talking about here today, is entitled Build an A-Team, Play to Their Strengths and Lead Them Up the Learning Curve. And that's published by Harvard Business Review Press. Whitney, welcome to AMA Edgewise. Thank you for having me. Let's just jump into this concept of disruption happening at a personal or an individual level. Now, we've heard uh, you can't help but hear the name Clayton Christensen and disruptive innovation or creative friction. All this stuff sort of comes to mind or whatnot, disruptive innovation. But it helps many companies rethink new products and services and capabilities and stuff like that. In many ways, it can it can unseat established companies. I mean, the the literal graveyard that once constituted Tom Peters in search of excellence. You know, how many of those companies just don't exist anymore? But this idea of disruptive innovation, in the book, you sort of bring it into the personal space. How is this type of thinking or this concept related to personal disruption? What's interesting is that if you think about disruptive innovation, so for me, having studied this for over 10 years, it's at its simplest, this idea that this silly little thing takes over the world. And after being an analyst on Wall Street, and then then when I co-founded this investment firm with Clayton Christensen, one of the big ahas that I had is as we were starting to apply this theory of disruption that says, okay, your odds of success are six times higher if you pursue a disruptive course. We're applying this theory to disruption. We're saying, silly little thing, Toyota is taking over General Motors. Silly little thing, Netflix is taking over Blockbuster. The big aha for me was that this didn't just apply to products. It also applied to people. And so for the last five years, I've been researching and codifying this framework of personal disruption so that whether you are scaling an organization, building a team, just trying to get your people to be more innovative, you've got a structure to do this. Personal disruption, then, is how you take these ideas and make them meaningful to you. So you start at the bottom of a ladder, you climb to the top, and then you jump to the bottom of a new ladder. Mm -hmm. Lady Gaga is a great example. She's a master of personal disruption. So 2008, she goes straight to the top of the ladder. And what does she do for an encore? She jumps to the bottom of a new ladder, one that could easily have put off her fan base. She collaborates with Tony Bennett on a jazz album. She does a Sound of Music tribute. So the hills are alive with Lady Gaga at the Oscars. And then she produces a country album. But the bet, it paid off. Her Mm -hmm. performance at the Super Bowl had the largest music audience ever. What's interesting about personal disruption is that in contrast to disruption with products, you're disrupting something. So Toyota is disrupting the incumbent General Motors. Mm -hmm. But when you disrupt yourself, you're the incumbent. I think for me, the, the big insight around this for anyone who's thinking about management is that inside of an organization, the fundamental unit of disruption, it's the individual. And so if you want your people to disrupt, 
you've got to allow, encourage, require them to disrupt themselves. And then these products and services and companies, organizations, countries will all happen on their own. Meaning companies don't actually disrupt, Mm -hmm. but people do. Oh, that's cool. Uh, Whitney, I'm a lot older than I look. Let's not go into that. You can laugh if you (laughs) like to. But um, um, way back in 1994, I read a book by Charles Handy entitled The Age of Paradox. And it was my first introduction to the sigmoid curve or the S-curve. I don't want to say it changed my life, but it changed my life. The awareness of what some people call personal velocity or the physics of jumping or something like that. He made a very clear case for it. And I don't want to go too far down the handy alley here, but I think there's a similarity between what you're talking about in terms of not the same thing, of course, in it with an S-curve, but it's that idea of how can managers support employees? Well, what, okay, fine. What is your definition of the S-curve? S-curve popularized by the sociologist E.M. Rogers in 1962. We used it at the Disruptive Innovation Fund to help us gauge how quickly an innovation would be adopted to try to somehow make the seemingly unpredictable predictable. So at the outset, we know that growth is going to be very slow until you reach a tipping point, which is the knee of the curve. And once you've reached that tipping point, which is tends to be 10 to 15% of the market, you enter hypergrowth. And then 90% are saturation. Now you're at the top of the curve. The growth tapers off. So another insight I had is we're, again, applying this S-curve for investing is that it can be applied to individuals. And so whenever you start something new, you start a new role, you start a new project, it's an opportunity to disrupt. It helps you understand the psychology of disruption, the psychology of change. For example, you start a new job. For the first six months, you picture that S, you're at the low end of the S curve. It looks like nothing is happening. This helps you avoid discouragement. And if you're the manager, it helps you avoid impatience. Then as you put in the effort, six months to a year, you start to get to that tipping point. So that sleek, steep back of the curve where you roar into competence and with this comes confidence. And then at the top of the curve, now you're a master. Things are easy, but because you're no longer learning, you can get bored. What do you need to do after six months to a year? You need to disrupt yourself and start over again. How can a manager, how can a leader of people help those people, help those team members both understand their curve, the steps on the curve and where they are on the curve and how to leverage the curve? Well, I think the first thing to do is to recognize that every single person in your organization is on a learning curve and that your team, your organization is actually a collection of learning curves. And so based on our research, you build an A-team, you optimize for innovation for a team that can manage through change by having 15% of your people at the low end of the S-curve. So this is where people are going to be inexperienced. But they're also, because they're new, going to have lots of insights. They're going to ask questions like, why do we do it like this? And in that asking of that question, while it may be kind of pesky and annoying and feeling a little bit threatening because they're asking and questioning the status quo, those kinds of questions can uncover these incredible strategic insights for you. So if you're willing to allow those questions to be asked, they can help you 
uncover opportunities to play where no one else is playing and to disrupt. So that's 15% of your people at the low end of the curve. Then you want to have about 70% of your people in the sweet spot of engagement. These are people who know enough, but not too much. And if you're willing to push these people to give them constraints, to give them challenges, to give them stretch assignments where there's the real risk of failure, you put them into a box and say, I need you to get out of that box. Again, these people are going to innovate their way out of that box and be able to really contribute to the innovation on the team. You also want 15% of your people at the high end of the S-curve. These people are masters, and because they're masters, again, top of the S-curve, it's like being on a mountain. This is a plateau where they have perspective, and they can help anchor the people who are at the low end in the middle of the curve. Now, the risk is, is that if they stay at that high end too long, that plateau can become a precipice. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of the things you can be aware of is if you want to know if your organization is about to be disrupted, you just take the pulse of your workforce. Because if you've got too many of your people at the high end, you're at risk because, again, they're bored. And bored people don't innovate. They get disrupted. How can this same type of thinking be applied to hiring people, identifying and hiring the best candidates for new team members, or and, and even after hiring them, onboarding these people? So I, I guess one of the things you're really asking me is, how exactly do you execute this S-curve strategy? Well, for heaven's sake. <laughs> You know, I got my answer in an unlikely place, which is Butte, Montana. It's it's known as the richest hill on earth. In the mid-1800s, you had miners go there panning for gold and silver, and the early gold rush disappointed. So a lot of them just sold off their claims for dirt cheap. But then you had this next wave of miners come in, and they discovered copper. Early on, copper wasn't valuable. But when electrical wiring became a thing, copper became extremely valuable. And so the people who were patient eventually became very, very wealthy. Butte presented a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for those patient people who are now known as the Copper Kings. And I often think of Butte, Montana, when people are talking about hiring. They say, you know, I can't find anyone. And I think, really? Or is it just that you're trying to hire people the gold standard. You're trying to go for silver when copper would do. In fact, there are very compelling reasons why copper would do Mm -hmm. when you're willing to hire for potential, not for proficiency. And so one of the best ways you hire for potential and not for proficiency is to be willing to mine for talent where others aren't mining. So a couple of examples are your internal candidates. Oftentimes we have these people who are like wallpaper to us. We don't see them anymore. But when we're willing to unpack their talents and unpack their skills into their component pieces and repackage our perception of them, they might be a great fit. Another potential opportunity that's overlooked are boomerangers, people who've left and want to come back. We tend to not want them because we feel jilted like a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Yet these people worked here before. You know you can work for them. They've been getting trained on someone else's nickel. Why wouldn't we want them back? Also, on-rampers. On-rampers are people who've been out of the workforce, who have been caring for parents or children. These people have had a master class, a crash course in soft skills, which frequently are the very skills that your leadership needs. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the fourth place I would look are people who are self-taught. A large percentage of the United States does not have a college degree, and that may mean that they don't know very much, but it also may mean that they're just self-taught. Yes, you need to credential them, 
But who wouldn't want someone on your team that is willing to take the initiative to figure something out? So these four categories of people, they're not overpicked. They're not overpriced. They're often hungry with something to prove. So when you're willing to buy low, hire for potential, and sell high, which means eventually they get to the top of the curve, you're able to really pursue this disruptive strategy and build a very powerful A-team. When you're dealing with yourself or maybe one or two other people, the word culture really doesn't come top of mind for a lot of this thinking. But the second you start involving more layers and more people and teams and organizations and offices and the whole nine yards, then you kind of shift into culture mode and culture awareness mode. It would seem if you're going to start down the path of this S continuum At some point, if it involves a whole organization, some type of cultural shift is going to have to happen. Am I right? And if that's so, why is that so? How do leaders do that? And if not, well, how do you get around that? It absolutely has to happen. Of course. Absolutely. So my answer is you start with yourself. I think there's a tendency to think, well, if I can just get my boss to buy into this idea, then we're good. And we can't do that. We need to start with ourselves. And what do I mean when I say start with ourselves? I mean, say to yourself, I'm going to adopt this S-curve strategy with my team, with the people who report to me. I'm going to make it possible for people to start at the low end, move to the high, and when they get to the top of the curve, move to a new one. And as I'm willing to do that, I start to be known as a talent developer. I have people who want to work for me, and we're productive because they're all in and they're engaged. And so I start to have a proof point that I can use. And sometimes the best way to manage up is to manage down. From there, once you've got that initial proof point, I think it's important to start getting buy-in throughout the organization. It's easy for you to think, okay, this is going to make so much sense, it's intuitive, and yet it's very antithetical to our current way that we try to go about being more innovative inside of our organizations. So one of the things we have to do is get buy-in to build a case. We tend, again, to try to get buy-in by saying, this will be so great if we do that, and yet... The trick here is to make it scarier not to change because we are all more motivated by the fear of losing something than we are by the prospect of gaining something. So one of the things you can do is lay out for people what it's going to cost us if we don't adopt this strategy. For example, we will lose our high potentials. If we continue to like them right where they are, they're going to leave us right where we are. If they don't leave, they may stay Well, obviously, they're going to stay if they don't leave. But because they're not challenged, they're going to be complacent and bored and therefore not innovate. And if you don't innovate, you're going to be less competitive. And if you are less competitive, then your competitors are going to leave you in the dust. What I would say then, now that you've beaten them over the head with that stick, (laughs) is give them a little bit of a carrot. And I think the carrot is when you make learning possible, your people are engaged. And when they're engaged, they're happy. And when they're happy, they're productive. And when they're productive, they like coming to work and they like working for you. And they tell other people that they like working for you. So all of a sudden, you become this talent magnet, this boss people love. And you've now built not only one A-team, but vast networks of A-teams across your career. It strikes me with a lot of the books that I read and the people that I interview that there's always something worthwhile and very attractive and highly interesting in their theory, their approach, their concepts. I think maybe some of our listeners might be thinking, well, this could be a flavor of the month kind of thing. We'll give it a shot, but I'm not sure it'll work in the long run. How does a company or organization or a leader sustain, keep something like this going over a period of time? 
It's such a great question. You know, I I think that the kernel of this idea came over 10 years ago where I was still working on Wall Street. I was working at Merrill Lynch at the time, and I had this really smart, talented junior working for me. His name is Mike Kopelman. He's now Senior VP of Finance at HBO. And there was an opportunity for him to move and work with Jessica Reeve Cohen, who was the global media analyst at Merrill at the time. And I thought, you know, he needs to go do this. So I went to management, said, you need him to move to this role. I said, Jessica Reeve Cohen, you need to move. I told him you need to move. And yet this was going to come at a big cost to me. I was willing, however, to sub-optimize the present, to optimize the future. So all good. And yet when review time came around... I didn't get credit for it. Nada, nothing, zip. And so, in fact, I developed talent at my own risk. And so I think the way that we move beyond this being the flavor of the month, which I certainly hope it will be much more than that, is that we have to institutionalize that practice. And so we need to measure it. Because when we measure things, for example, in 360 reviews, is this person a developer of talent? If we measure it, it starts to happen. But more importantly, in order to put some meaning behind that measurement, we have to put money. We have to get money involved and have people's bonuses be in part contingent on whether or not they developed people. And so there are companies like that out there who do something like this, like Talk Talk, Mm -hmm. and in the UK. So I think the more we're willing to measure it, put money behind that measurement, then we'll start to see people institutionalizing this kind of practice. And just as a final question here, Whitney, we here at the American Management Association, we like to think that our our noble cause, I'll call it that, is is to help new managers and middle managers, aspiring leaders, people who have been given a team, a budget, a, a plan, a target for the very first time. And they're juggling a lot of things and they're trying to figure out a lot of stuff. What's in this book for a new manager? There's a lot. I think it allows you to think about the composition of your team, that you want to have people at the low end, the middle and the high, and what does that look like? It, you can be low, middle, high in terms of domain expertise. You can be low, middle, high in terms of how much time you've been at the company. It can be where you are in your career. So I think that you've got this framework that will help you build out your team. But I think more importantly, what I would say is in here for a new manager is to recognize that you are at the low end of your own learning curve. Your own curve. As a manager. And that it's going to, I had a conversation with someone just earlier this week when I was speaking who said, this gave me so much comfort because I was feeling very discouraged and I was being very hard on myself. I'm three months in and I... not, I feel like I'm not doing a good job. And so I think when you understand this S-curve strategy, you can say to yourself, oh, I have about six months, maybe nine months. And now I know that it's normal for me to be coming home from work every day and feeling a little bit discouraged. What you want to do is be looking for the momentum and figuring out, are you growing and how fast? And so for me, that's the biggest takeaway for a brand new manager is as you're on the slow end of the learning curve to be patient with yourself because you will figure it out. We've been speaking to Whitney Johnson, talking about her book, Build an A-Team, Play to Their Strengths and Lead Them Up the Learning Curve. Best of luck with the book, Whitney. Thank you. AMA webinars give you 90 minutes of focused how-to instruction and specific solutions to help you solve your most pressing work issues. Find tactical, practical courses on building work relationships, polishing your spreadsheet skills, managing your team to meet company goals, and more on our events calendar at amanet.org forward slash events. We take feedback very seriously here at the AMA. 
If you get a minute, you have some thoughts about this program or additional questions, just send an email to us at podcasts at amanet.org.